as we continue on the path of following at Liberty Hills Bible Church. You know, our goal um, as a church is to make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God. Mature followers, those who are following Christ. We're continuing this morning um, in our journey or our, our passage um, in the Gospel of John of living with the Word. We're going to continue living with the Word as we walk through the Gospel of John to see the person and work of Christ described and defined and explained and made known to us. So last week, we were in chapter 1. We're still there. So if you want to get chapter 1, then I'll tell you where in chapter 1 we are. But last week, in the first part of chapter 1, we saw that the gospel is the greatest love story. And the gospel isn't just true to life, because we all appreciate stories and are most engaged with stories that we can connect to, that we can relate to. story that we can say, yes, that is real. You know, we liked fantasy and fiction as recreation, but a story that is real, that we can put ourselves in, we really connect to and appreciate. So that the gospel is not just true to life, which it is, but more importantly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is truth that leads to life. And we saw the first part of chapter 1, when we see that Christ came to present himself as the fullness of grace, that which we cannot earn or afford, and to present himself as the fullest of truth, that which we cannot refute or avoid. So Christ came as the fullness of grace and truth, as the only means of restoring our relationship to God. So with that as the introduction from last week, we'll see how the story of the gospel unfolds in a narrative form as we work through the different encounters. A plug for our first hour, the Sunday school, the Bible class on Sunday morning, um, I gave an overview of the Gospel of John. I'll try to get that out um, distributed for those that missed. Now, those that are here have the responsibility to help you catch up, to see the overview of the Gospel and to see kind of the format of the Gospel in a big picture, kind of to see the forest as we work through each morning or each Sunday, rather, at this time, at individual trees through the Gospel of John. So we'll see the story, the Gospel unfold in narrative form as we work through meeting the people Christ met, going to the places where Christ visited, and by seeing the Christ, the things that Christ did and hearing the things Christ said and taught. So the first episode, so to speak, the first instance that we're going to look at, as I was reading through it and studying through it, it almost came across, it reminded me of the game show 20 Questions, where the religious and cultural leaders of the day asked John, the one who was baptizing, John the Baptist, not the John that's author of the book. So we're going to, today, when I refer to John in the story, it's John the Baptist, John the one that was baptizing, not John the author. But where the cultural, the Jewish, religious and cultural leadership of the day came to him, to John the Baptist in Bethany, a town on the east side of the Jordan River, if you like geography and want to see a map where this is all taking place. The leadership came to John the Baptist and asked him a series of questions as an attempt to understand ultimately who Christ was. But really, they were asking John who he was in that process. So John chapter 20, I'm sorry, John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 19 this morning. And I'm going to read from 19 to 34. John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Question 1. Okay, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. 
What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So to help set the stage for this conversation that was having the Pharisees, we learn later in the passage, the Pharisees, the, the spiritual, religious, cultural um, authority for the Jews, sent the priests and the Levites to John. So these, the, the context of why this question, this interaction was taking place. You can write this down. I'm going to read it, but you can turn to Matthew chapter 3 um, if you care to. But Matthew chapter 3, the first 12 verses is another example, another record rather, Matthew's record of this interaction. And it helps kind of set the stage and fill us in a little bit of the background of what this, what is happening in this interaction that John records that we just read. So here's Matthew's account of that. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptizing by him in the river, and they were baptized by him in the river, Jordan, confessing their sins. Significant following, significant people, a regional, not just in that town, coming to John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's an introduction. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He was challenging the corner on the religious market, so to speak, that they had, their attitude and their motivation. Verse 10 in Matthew still, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will not clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. Oh, he will do that, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So a different account of the, 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 a fuller conversation that John had with those that came out to ask him these questions. Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? We need to know this. So in the Matthew that we just read, that account is not really the way we normally think to win friends and influence people. When John engaged the Pharisees, when John the Baptist engaged those that were sent by the Pharisees and Sadducees, the priests and the Levites, the, the religious and theological ninjas of the day, so to speak, the minds in those realms, he challenged their attitude, he challenged their motivation. But with the personal work of Christ that they didn't know yet. So now we'll come back to John's Gospel. The account of John records for us of this. So the Pharisees sent the priests and the Levites. The Levites were assistants to the priests, primarily in the areas of temple worship and the environment around the temple and security. 
So leadership was sent out to John to confirm who he was. So they knew the prophecies of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24. And this is why they come and ask, are you the Christ? And he said, no. Well, then are you the Elijah? And he said, no. Are you the other prophet? They knew there was something supposed to happen because of Daniel chapter 9. I'll read this verse. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal or to confirm both the vision and the prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. This is what the Jews were looking forward to. You missed the fuller description of that in our first hour this morning during the Bible class of seeing kind of the historical and cultural significance of where the Jews were as a culture under Roman occupation. And the Romans took over for the Greeks, who took over for the Babylonians, who took over when Israel had their own kingdom. So the nation is looking forward to the time, and still is, looking forward to the time where their kingdom can be reestablished. But they knew this prophecy from Daniel where it says 70 weeks or 70 series of seven, 490 years from Daniel's prophecy. They said, this is about the time right here, right now. They had a calendar. Even back then, there was an app for that. They could chase the, trace the timing of that and said, right about this time is when the Messiah is supposed to appear. So John the Baptist, the one baptizing at the River Jordan, has quite a following. And they come to him to ask him, are you the Messiah? So the Pharisees, the, the uh, priests, the Levites, had these questions for him. So the first question in the narrative John confirms that he is not who they were looking for. He was just the early warning device, preparing the way for the one who was coming. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He didn't deny it, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the one anointed or chosen by God as your Messiah to restore he starts right there. So the first question is, who are you? Is this who you are? And he says, no. So I'll continue reading there in the text. They asked him then, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Next question, are you the prophet? And he said, no. They said to them, then, who are you? We need to answer the people that sent us to ask you this. So if you won't answer us, well, at least help us so we don't get in trouble from those who sent us. Give us something to give them. So once they had the confirmation that John was not the Messiah, the anointed one chosen by God, they asked the second question, are you Elijah, reincarnate? Because Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's what they had been experiencing as a nation in captivity. So they asked him first, are you the Messiah? And he says, no. Well, then are you Elijah, who Malachi prophesied and said would come, Elijah would come, a prophet as Elijah would come, before the day of the Lord? Is this what this is? So they were confusing the coming of the Messiah, prophesied by Daniel, with the day of the Lord, prophesied by Malachi. But that's okay. Easy to confuse. The coming of the Messiah was a time of rejoicing and restoration. The, com- the day of the Lord is a time of judgment based on man's response. So they're working through their list. So he says, no, I am not Elijah. So they go to question number three. Are you the prophet that Moses referred to? Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who is that prophet? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, then Moses writes, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet 
like me from among your, you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. So the Jewish leadership, the culture at the time, is asking John the baptizer, because of the following, because of his message, the time of God, repent, the kingdom of heaven is close. They come and say, then if that's the case, are you the Messiah? And he says, no. Well, you'll, are you Elijah then, prophesying about the day of the Lord? And he said, no. Then are you the other prophet that God promised that would come and speak to us again? Because they had not had a prophet in several hundred years. So John was not the Messiah, the one sent to redeem Israel or restore. John is not Elijah sent, Elijah sent to proclaim that judgment. And John is not prophet X, sent to allow the people to hear from God again. So they're getting nowhere fast. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor. Well, you know it's not this. Okay, but I don't want to know what it is. It's a frustrating time. They know he's not these things, but they still don't know who he is. They're still trying to figure this out. So they go to the bonus round in this game of 20 questions for question number four. Then who are you? In verse 19, um, again, hear the whole story. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests, and they said, are you the Christ? He said, I am not. Are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you the prophet? He said, no. So in verse 22, they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, he's quoting from chapter 40 of Isaiah, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, make, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway. For God, prepare for his arrival. So now they're getting somewhere. Only the prophets, only the priests and the Levites, they don't know where here is. They're getting somewhere, but they don't know where here is. So they go into double jeopardy and ask question number five. Then why are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, the anointed one, if you are not Elijah, sent to proclaim the day of the Lord, if you are not the prophet that was promised that would let us hear from God, if you're not that, what authority, why are you then baptizing? See, for the Jews, baptism was a ritual cleansing um, before worship. But culturally then, for the Gentiles, it was part of their conversion process from being a Gentile to Judaism. That identification, those outside of a relationship with God, coming into a relationship with God. So they understood the concept of baptism, either as ritual cleansing or as a, a transformation from being a Gentile to being a follower of God under the Jewish system. So they knew the concept of baptism. But what John was doing didn't fit their framework because it wasn't the ritual cleansing and it wasn't baptizing Gentiles as they became followers of God. So their challenge to him was you have no authority to baptize and you have no reason to baptize. So if we can't figure out who you are, why are you doing what you're doing? And his final answer, John elevates the person of Christ and points out the reality that while they are anticipating the Messiah, they have no clue who he is or what he has come to do. Verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? 
John answered them, I baptize with water, but among, among you stands one you do not know. And we saw that in chapter, or earlier in chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So, among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Have you ever had a conversation with someone about someone else? Then as you're going on and on, that someone else walks up behind you and you keep digging a hole? You can nod your head. We've all done that in some way, shape, or form or experienced that. We may have been the one that walked up and heard people talking about us. This is kind of what's happening here with the Pharisees or those sent by the Pharisees and John the Baptist. See, the whole subject of their conversation was right there, and they didn't know it. Not at that moment, standing right there when they're having this conversation. But Christ was there and among them and didn't even recognize it. He says, I'm talking to you about one you don't even see, you don't know, and you don't recognize. Back in Matthew, his recollection of that conversation is fairly strong. When John points to them and basically says, you guys are ignorant, and you're dishonoring God in your ignorance. So while the priests and the Levites, by asking John the Baptist, are you the Messiah, are you Elijah, or are you the promised prophet, they were putting John up pretty high. He said, you've got to be in this category of people sent by God. John says, you're equating me to that level of person, that level of responsibility, that level of ministry, that level of an assignment from the Lord. You're equating me there, let me tell you what. If I was at that level, the one we're talking about, I'm not even worthy of untying his shoes. That's how much you're missing the point. So again, he's being fairly strong, fairly direct with them. The Messiah is so great that even somebody of Elijah's caliber and position and role before the Lord or the prophet isn't even worthy to untie Christ's shoes, the Messiah. So this game of 20 questions ends when John the Baptist introduces Christ to the priests and to the Levites. Chapter 1, still verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, continued, he said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John doesn't keep saying past, I'm just a messenger, when they ask him, Who are you? The next day, Christ is there and he says, let me tell you the one that you've been looking for. Let me describe for you who it is that you were asking me about yesterday. Let me tell you this one that is among you that you do not not know. Because even I didn't know him. Yet God revealed it to me. So John clarifies these three things. John the author in the book, but John the Baptist in that record there. Three things about the Messiah. The first thing is that he provides a description. Here is, behold, here is the Lamb of God. Second, he identifies a role. The Lamb of God is the uh, the description. The role is takes away the sin. And then the recipients are the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
That is John's introduction of Christ to the Jewish culture. And they understood exactly what John was saying by those three things. Especially the first two concepts. The third one they're going to struggle with. But they could get it. The first thing, the Lamb of God. From Exodus chapter 12, the Passover sacrifice. The Jewish culture understood the concept, the Lamb of God. We talked about some of that this morning in the description of Christ in being perfect. That lamb that was the sacrifice on behalf of that household had to be perfect or the sacrifice was null and void. So the lamb of God is perfect. The Passover sacrifice, second, takes away the sin. That lamb was, yes, perfect, but also innocent and an effective substitute on behalf, again, and the Passover of that household. For the Jewish culture, this was their path to God. This is what they understood very well. The third thing, it's a little bit harder for them to swallow, takes away the sin of the world, not just the Jewish people. See, the whole law, much of, most of the law that Israel was to follow, as we read about in the Old Testament, was to be a demonstration of the character and purposes of God to the world around them, so that the world around them would see God through Israel's description, physical, visual description, by obeying the law. So the way the world could get to God was through Israel, so to speak, through their demonstration. So the Lamb of God was the Jews' Passover sacrifice that takes, that takes away the sin, was innocent, perfect, the substitute for them. But for the world, not just for us, because we're looking for a Messiah that will release us from Rome and restore our kingdom. They will struggle with this, and we'll see this in the, in the text ahead as we go through the book. So John the Baptist then confirms that God himself called John to be that messenger, that God himself revealed Jesus as the Messiah to John. And God himself revealed that Christ would not baptize with water as a way of identifying, but with the Holy Spirit. See, in this context, the Jews were thinking that ritual cleansing, but they also understood the identification that came with baptism. Those, the Gentiles, now identifying with God through this path. So John walks them through that process. John kind of has a theology or a doctrine lesson with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Levites, the priests, the people who knew the law and the scripture better than anybody of their day. John the Baptist, this guy that wore, um, you know, camel or camel skin and ate locusts and wild honey and, and he, he was not a city dweller at all. He gives them, this uneducated guy from, apparently from out in the countryside, comes in near town and gives them a theology and a doctrine lesson. I think they received it well. We'll see how that plays out in the story moving forward. But the next thing, the next section, so here's John's interaction with the, the Pharisees, the leadership, the priests and Levites specifically, then the second day, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were there, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. So there's John the Baptist's interaction with the cultural leadership as we begin to learn, and, and our, starting in chapter 1, our, our, our perspective, our understanding, our knowledge of the personal work of Christ grows. It's that, that 20 questions, a game of 20 questions with John the Baptist. But the second thing then is that we can see here in this chapter, like what's in a name, what's in a title? When we hear a title or a name, there's something there, a position that implies some things, whether that's at work, your boss, or your supervisor, or at home, mom and dad. They're not just people that exist, but there's a role, there's responsibility, there's implications in that relationship. And we see this interaction then with Jesus, 
and the disciples here in the second half of this chapter. So now in verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stopped with him, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him, he, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Verse 43, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, excuse me, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Behold, I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. So here this interaction between Christ and several of the disciples. And I want us to see six titles given by the disciples to Christ in that series of interactions. As John the Baptist described and defined Christ to the Jewish culture, here's how the the first layer of these personal relationships where these men begin to see Christ. So here are these titles. John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. That's what he told the Israelites, the Jewish culture. That's what he then tells these men as well. As he's there, these disciples, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Several of the disciples then said, Rabbi or teacher, one describing the mind of God and worth following. Andrew uses the word Messiah, and Jesus calls Andrew to follow that. Philip refers to Christ as the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. It's not just Moses wrote this and then the prophets wrote this, but the, the common expression is of Moses and the prophets, Moses writing the law, the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, and the prophets writing the last, it's kind of bookends, from Moses through the prophets. So the term, the phrase Moses and the prophets means the entire Old Testament. So here is Philip saying, the one whom Moses and the prophets, the one who all of the Old Testament speaks to us about. Nathaniel, rabbi we've also already heard, but son of God and king of Israel. So just like any title today, in the home, mom and dad, at work, boss or supervisor, um, out in the community, officer, whatever it could be. There are implications with those titles. There are implications with that descriptor, as there are here. There are implications by each of these things. 
And also know that Christ did not deny any of these titles. He didn't say, no, 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 not like John. I am not this, I am not this, I am not this. Christ accepted all of these titles, didn't clarify it, didn't correct them, didn't change it. No, 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 let me explain. This is not who I am. Every one of those Christ accepted. So what is wrapped up in these titles? We saw a Lamb of God, that perfect sacrifice, that is a substitute for the individual as a death penalty on their behalf. Okay, Rabbi, the teacher, one who speaks the mind of God. Messiah, the chosen one, anointed by God to redeem Israel. The one who Moses and the prophets, the one the entire Old Testament prepares us for. Nathaniel's was Rabbi, we saw that one. Son of God, deity. Verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, but the Word was God. The Son of God, Christ is God. And King of Israel, title the, the Jewish culture had been looking for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. We are looking for our new king to restore our nation, to fulfill the promises that God gave our nation. They were looking forward to that. And here, Nathaniel identifies Christ as that right here in chapter 1 of this gospel story account that we're working through. So what for us are the implications of each of those titles? We're not in the Jewish culture, but the concept is there. When we, see, when we hear Christ referred to as the Lamb of God, what is our response to Christ as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for us? Innocent? We're the guilty ones. He's the innocent one. The Lamb was innocent. The Lamb that they sacrificed had done nothing wrong, but was still perfect. And it was that obedient sacrifice. Rabbi, one speaking the mind of God. When we read the words of Christ, do we just say, oh, those are the ones in red written in my Bible? Or do we say, no, this is the mind of God. And I need to respond to it as such. At whatever stage of life we are, whatever we're facing, when we see Christ's words, do we see this is God's word? And I need to respond to it accordingly, to understand it, to obey it, to teach it, to share it, to demonstrate it. Messiah, the one chosen, appointed, anointed by God. How do we respond or how do we relate to that? What is our response to that title? This is God's plan. I wish there was a different plan, maybe. But this was God's plan. Do we accept then God's plan? Christ, Son of God. We saw that a bit heavy in chapter 1. Christ is deity, King of Israel. I won't experience the, the fullness and, and be able to, to celebrate um, that restoration of kingdom because it's not my culture and my heritage and my tradition. But because of Scripture, what I see and what I can celebrate, what we can celebrate, even here living in you know, Kansas City, Metro Missouri, is God's fulfillment of God's promises and restoring the kingdom for Israel. So King of Israel, it's not my kingdom necessarily. It's not my territory. It's not my land and history and heritage. No, but it represents the promises of God that He is committed to fulfill. So I can rejoice in that fulfillment. I can rejoice in the person of Christ being that king, even though it won't be my kingdom, so to speak, or my country. So Christ did not deny any of these titles. He accepted them. Right here at early stages of this book that we are studying through. So the account of John the author and John the baptizer is critical to our understanding of the person and work of Christ. Not just on a theological or doctrinal level, Although that is the foundation of what we believe, 
then changes how we act. So yes, what we believe, but on a very personal and practical level as well. As we respond to these titles, as we understand and absorb into our lives the implication of who Christ is. But also then, based on those roles that come with those titles, what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do. So even the national media this week has covered that question, has wrestled with the same understanding of who Christ is, what Christ has done for mankind, and what the implications of that reality are. That, that, those three questions, who Christ is, that's a statement, not a question, what he's done for mankind, and what the implications of that reality are. Our national media has been struggling with that this week. So it is not just something that, oh, when we read about John, we kind of tie it in and we see that there. The implications are significant for us today, personally, for all of us. So how do you answer those questions? Who is Christ? What is he doing? What has he done? And what are the implications of that? Of each of these titles, what is your response to those things? To the Lamb of God the substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf, the rabbi, the authoritative speaker on behalf of the things of God, the one who speaks God's words, the Messiah, anointed one, chosen and appointed by God, the Son of God, eternal deity, King of Israel, fulfillment of God's promise, the demonstration, the confirmation, the proof of God's faithfulness. So John chapter 20, end of the book. We're in John 1 today. End of the book, chapter 20, verse 31 tells us that these things are written. So these verses we just looked at today, John wrote them. The Holy Spirit inspired John to pen these words so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in His name. So that's the whole purpose of why we're going through this book, is that each one of us would have a better understanding of the person and the work of Christ. And that through that understanding, seeing that we can believe, and by believing we'll have eternal life. So that's our purpose for the study today. That's our purpose for working through the Gospel of John over these several uh, weeks that we will be doing that. That each of us would see Christ for who He is and respond appropriately and accordingly for God's glory and our eternal benefit. I'll dismiss this in prayer now. Father, we're grateful, not just for today and our opportunity to gather together, but we are so grateful for Your Word. Uh, specifically for this book of John that we get to study through. Lord, we would first ask for humble hearts to lay ourselves before it and to accept it as truth. Second, that you would open our hearts and minds to understand. And third, that we would obey and apply uh, for your glory. Lord, so today, uh, this week, as we go out, may we see ways uh, to appropriate this reality in our life and to demonstrate the impact of that reality as well to those around us at home, at work, at school, wherever we are, that people would see Christ, that people would see through us the teaching of John and believe in Christ. So we pray this by your grace and for your glory. Amen.